Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I come from Paddan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, these are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life, long to this day the angel who has redeemed me from all evil bless the boys and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers abraham and isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth this is god's word welcome to summit crossing Thank you so much for gathering with us today. If you would like to connect with us further, take one of the green connect cards located in the chairs in front of you. Fill that out and place it in the offering baskets as they're passed around at the end of the service. This week, we'll send you some information on the best way to get connected. One quick reminder, we're in need of items for the Full Tummy Project. Full Tummy is an opportunity to partner with other churches and nonprofits in alleviating child hunger here in Limestone County. You can drop items off, and find out what is needed out in the main foyer area. We'll be back in our Genesis series today, specifically chapters 48 and 49. Feel free to grab one of the Bibles located on the floor around you if you do not have one of your own. We pray that you're encouraged today as we proclaim together with one voice that Jesus is King and that we are His people. morning. Welcome to Summit Crossing. Uh, I'm glad to be here with you guys today. It's always a joy to gather as the people of God, as the family of God, and sing together to King Jesus. So I hope you guys value that um, as it is a blessing and a privilege that we get to do that. Uh, my name is Joel McCarty. I'm the Mission Life pastor here uh, as well as the student pastor. Um, and so 
Uh, I'm not the normal teaching pastor. That's Jamie Nettles. He's out of town this week, so I'm stepping in um, and have the opportunity to teach. Um, As you know, we've been in Genesis. As you can see up here, we're in Genesis. We've been in Genesis now for over a year. I don't know if you're keeping count. We've had some breaks in between, Um, but we're nearing the end. Today, we're in chapter 48 and 49, and we'll have one more teaching in Genesis, Genesis chapter 50. And so, uh, again, quick review, just to catch us up if you haven't been here. We started with creation, right? The creation of humanity, the creation of Adam and Eve. Then we saw the fall. We saw um, Abraham and blessing come into clear focus there. We spent quite a bit of time in the life of Jacob, and the reason I highlight that is because we're going to get to see the end of Jacob's life today. And so it's important to remember when we talked about Jacob. Last week, we got to see Jacob reunited with Joseph in Egypt. So Joseph was sold into slavery, all working out God's purposes. Joseph is then raised up, right, in Egypt, and he's brought to power through a series of events, um, years in prison and in the pit and various things. Um, but Joseph is brought to power, and God uses that to not only preserve life to the entire world, because all the nations came to Egypt, he also brought specifically Jacob and his family. And there was a full trust on the part of Jacob Because there was a promise that the land of Canaan, which is where they were, was going to be the nation of Israel's one day. And so Jacob comes to Egypt trusting that God will bring them back. And they settle there in Goshen because shepherds, as we read last week, were an abomination to the Egyptians. And that's another important thing to remember. And so at the end of last week, in chapter 47, we see that um, Jacob lives in Egypt for 17 years. And then at the end of his life, so we kind of zoom forward, the narration zooms forward 17 years, and then we get to see the end of Jacob's life. By way of introducing this text, let me explain that it's not as much of a narrative as typical, right? Most of the passages that we've read in Genesis are very narrative. It's a lot of the narrator talking and then some, um, you know, communication there in between. This is actually flipped. There's not as much narration, and it's a bunch of Jacob talking. And so we're going to get to see Jacob speaking at the end of his life. I mean, the quick summary of the entire two chapters is Jacob is about to die, and he blesses his two Egyptian-born grandsons, the the sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, and then he's going to bless the rest of his 12 sons. He's going to call on his 12 sons and pronounce blessings, and these blessings will shape their destiny for years to come. So as we go into this text, I want to remind you of a couple things that are important. One, remember the original audience. The original audience hearing this for the first time would have been the nation of Israel. No longer just a family, now a nation, 12 different tribes, and they would be hearing about their origin and hearing about their destiny. They would have been on the edges of their seat and seeing if God had provided in the past, and this would hopefully give them encouragement as they're wandering in the wilderness, and God's promised them this land, this Canaan land, but they don't know if God's really going to come through. And this would be an encouragement that God will keep his promises. And the second thing I want to remind you of is that the life of Jacob was one of turmoil. Remember, we we saw Jacob. It's been a a little few weeks since we were back there in the life of Jacob. But it's important to remember that the life of Jacob was up and down. He was not this just consistent, solid, you know, follower of Yahweh. He was up and down. He was deceived and he was the deceiver, like back and forth. He just had a lot of problems in his life. And you need to be reminded of that because we're going to get to see Jacob's final transformation and his sanctified life as he's on his deathbed. We're going to get to see how Jacob's life had been so transformed that he now is not only just receiving the promises of God, he's actually acting out the promises of God. He's adopted what I would call the theme of the the lesson today is a kingdom world view. He's adopted a kingdom world view. And we're going to see how the, the king and his kingdom, this promise of a kingdom runs all the way through scripture, starting back here in Genesis. And yes, we don't see it in really clear picture. It comes into focus when Jesus, the actual king, steps on the scene and brings this into full force, right? But we get to see pictures and glimpses of the kingdom all the way back in Genesis. And we get to see how the kingdom operates and how the subjects of the kingdom begin to operate in the manner of the king, right? So Jacob is now operating. We're going to see him operate with a kingdom worldview and a kingdom lens. He's been transformed. He did not always operate this way. Actually, most of his life, he trusted in his own power over and above God's. And so this is applicable for us because we love grace and the kingdom when it's given to us. We like the idea of grace, but when it comes to us showing grace to others, Sometimes that's where like, it cringes, but that's where the rubber meets the road, and we find out what we really believe, if we really are operating with the kingdom worldview. See, Jacob had experienced, he knew he needed grace, and we all would say that. In the abstract theological sense, we would say, yes, we're helpless without God. But the way we live our lives betrays 
our beliefs and our actions reveal what we truly believe, that we think we kind of deserve some of God's grace. I mean, really, we're better than so-and-so down the road who made some poor decisions and he got what he deserved and I got what I deserved, which was to be led into the kingdom. Like, that's not how it works. That's upside down. And so Jacob was so transformed. He had this personal experience with grace that he was so transformed that he now begins to operate as God operates and begins to show grace. There's hope in the gospel and we see it in the life of Jacob. There's three blessings we're going to focus on, even though there's more than that in this passage. There's the blessing to Ephraim and Manasseh. Then there's the blessing to Judah and the blessing to Joseph. There are more blessings than that, but as the text focuses heavily on these three, so we are going to focus on these three. And the others, if you really want to know about them, I'll mention them briefly. You can go read some book or commentary. It'll be great. Do that on your own time. I'm just joking. All right, so we're going to look at the three blessings, and in each blessing we're going to see a what I would call a kingdom principle, a principle that Jacob is operating out of that shows this kingdom worldview. And so the first principle is that the kingdom of God chooses the least likely people. We're going to see that the kingdom of God chooses the least likely people. And the second principle, the kingdom of God uses the least likely methods. So the kingdom of God chooses the least likely people, uses the least likely methods, and all these things exist for the glory of God and for the good of all nations. The kingdom of God exists for his glory alone and for the good of all peoples and all nations. So with each principle, we'll not only look at the life of Jacob and the blessing and those he's giving the blessing to, we will also look forward to the exact imprint and nature of God, Jesus Christ. The king himself who has brought the kingdom to bear in clear focus and in full force, we're going to look at Jesus and how all promises are fulfilled in him. We're going to see how Jesus' life displays these kingdom principles. And at the end, we're going to tie them all together with a glimpse and revelation into the eternal throne room of Jesus. So that's kind of where we're going. I hope that helps you. I have two goals for you today. Number one is worship. I know it's easy to think of worship as just what we just did and what we sing together, right? And that's worship. And now it's time to just partake some knowledge and like consume some knowledge uh, and get some theological training, right? That's not it at all. The goal of any theology is worship and awe to the creator, to the originator, right? That's why we study God, to know him, to gaze deeply on him. And so the first goal is worship and the second goal is transformation. As you are worshiping King Jesus, that is how you are transformed. You are not transformed by trying harder, by doing more, by pulling up yourself by your bootstraps and saying, let me figure out this kingdom way of living on my own. It doesn't work that way. You gaze deep on the beauty and majesty and glory of God and you step back and you say, wow, what a creator, what a king, what a kingdom. And your life is then transformed because you gaze on his beauty and all the other gods that call your name just shed off. Because you gaze deeply on him. So I hope you get a greater glimpse and a deeper taste of who God is today. So having set up that introduction that I know was long, but I think it was necessary, let's dive into the text. Genesis chapter 48 is where we are again, and we're going to start there in verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. So our story continues with, again, Jacob coming to to Egypt. He's been here 17 years, and he's been sick before. But this time, something's different. This time, he knows that this, this is it. He's on his deathbed. He's losing strength. And so Joseph and his two sons come to Jacob. And Israel or Jacob are interchangeable in this passage. He summons his strength, and he sits up in bed. They know this is most likely the last time they'll talk to him. And so what will Jacob say? At the end of his life, as when you near the end of your life, you have time to reflect on not only your life, but your kid's life and everything else and all the regrets or all the wins, all the losses. How will Jacob handle this? So this is important to hear his last words. What is the first thing he says in verse three? And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Jacob reveals that the promises of God are more real to him now than ever. I mean, up to this point in the narrative, anytime this promise was made, it was made by Yahweh himself. For the first time, we get to see Jacob speaking on behalf of Yahweh. 
He again is operating out of this kingdom worldview and he's saying that I trust this promise so much that I'm staking my life on it. I will stake your life on it, Joseph. I will stake your two grandsons life on it, my grandson's life on it. I believe this promise so much. He is acting as an image bearer of God, which was the original mandate to spread the kingdom of God. He's doing this as he pronounces this blessing. In verse 5, he tells Joseph his plan to adopt Joseph's two Egyptian-born sons as his own. And the narrator makes it clear that they were born in Egypt. He says in verse 5, And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And then in verse 8 through 12, we're not going to read it. There's this adoption ceremony. He kind of says, who are these? And it's like, who will give this bride away? I mean, it's this ceremonial adoption. And then the two sons are, are embraced and hugged and they're placed on the knees of Jacob, which was part of the consummation of this adoption ceremony. We would see this with in Genesis before with surrogate mothers. When someone would have a baby on behalf of another woman, that woman would then take the baby and place uh, the baby on her knees to represent that this baby was now her own. And this is what Jacob does. Now, this has much more significance significance than it seems on the surface. Because in this adoption, this is now ensuring a couple things. One, that these two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, have no place in the Egyptian family. Jacob and Joseph are both willing to trust that the one true God, Yahweh, will care for these two sons more than the gods of Egypt. These two sons, remember, Joseph is second in power. Joseph is second in power, so these two sons have every right. They're going to be cared for. They're going to be provided for in Egypt if they stay. But by adopting them into his family and making them part of the family trade, which is shepherds, which is an abomination to Egypt, they're saying, we trust so much that God will keep his promises and that he will provide even when it doesn't look like it. Jacob said, I've seen this my whole life, and I trust this. This act of blessing these two sons as his own required great faith on behalf of Jacob. Of all the things Jacob had done in his life that require faith, wrestling with an angel could have been listed in Hebrews. All these other things could have been listed in Hebrews, but what's listed in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, by faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. This is an act of faith and worship. By adopting these two sons and blessing them as part of his own, trusting that God would do what he said. this This is beautiful. So as they're removed from the knees, now they will actually start the blessing, the blessing ceremony. And so Jacob is going to bless these two, and how will this work? So Joseph, in verse 13, he takes them both, Ephraim in his right hand, toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. So if you can imagine this, we have Manasseh here in Joseph's, sorry, Ephraim here in Joseph's right hand, and Manasseh in Joseph's left hand, and he's bringing them to Israel. And the reason he's doing this is because in the culture, the right hand of blessing was the greater blessing. And the firstborn should receive the greater inheritance. And so Manasseh would be in Israel's right hand, and uh, Ephraim would be in Israel's left hand. Now remember, Jacob's getting older. He can't see that well. We've already heard that. So he's going to stretch out his hands, and Joseph's setting this up to work as the cultures and the expectation of the age. But what does Israel do in verse 14? And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. Again, the author is clear to point out that Manasseh is the firstborn. He deserved the greater blessing, but it's important to see what's going on here. I mean, we've seen this before, right? We've seen this happen before where Isaac was chosen over Ishmael and Jacob was chosen over Esau, Perez over Zerah. But here again is the difference. Instead of God himself doing this, it is Jacob acting on behalf of God out of the kingdom worldview. And in this crossing of the hands, we see the first kingdom principle that the kingdom of God chooses the least likely people. He crosses his hands and gives this blessing. And watch Joseph's response. Even Joseph doesn't understand operating out of this kingdom worldview. He says in verse 17, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. Even Joseph is upset and saying, this isn't how it's supposed to work. He physically takes his father's hand and tries to place it on the head of Manasseh. Look at Jacob's response. It's so beautiful. Just, I mean, Joseph probably thought his 
father was just crazy. He's an old man. He can't see that well. And he got mixed up. But Jacob's intentional and he tells him, he says, his father refused and said, I know my son. I know. He also shall become a people and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. Again, we see that instead of Yahweh himself, Jacob is acting as a vice regent of God. The kingdom had so transformed him that he is now living out of that identity. He's spreading the rule and reign and kingdom of God by choosing the least likely candidate. He's upsetting the cultures and customs of the age to give God glory instead of Manasseh. This was so real to Jacob. We get to see a glimpse back in 15 and 16 into Jacob's heart behind this blessing. He says, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel and the angel there specifically referencing the angel of the Lord that he wrestled with, God himself, who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. Let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Jacob calls God his shepherd. This is, This is crazy. Through the ups and downs, God is faithful. The very thing that the Egyptians thought were an abomination was a blessing to Jacob. And this says as much about God as shepherd as it does about Jacob as a sheep. Jacob is saying that without God's guidance, without his leading me, I am a fumbling, unintelligent, stupid sheep who just messes up time and time again. He goes on to say that the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, this word redeemed, the connotation in this culture for redemption, it was when somebody would rack up a debt so large that there was no way to pay it other than selling themselves into slavery. And a family member would come and out of his own pocket would pay the debt. And Jacob is saying that I am redeemed and I'm redeemed from evil. I was enslaved to evil. If anyone was enslaved to evil, it was Jacob. He knew how to be redeemed from evil and God had rescued him from being enslaved to his deception and his natural way of thinking and transformed him to having a kingdom world view. Just as he had been personally chosen by God as an unlikely candidate, now he operates out of that kingdom world view and chooses the least likely candidate. I mean, is this not what the kingdom of God does? It moves on through the least of these, right? As we look forward to Jesus, again, the exact imprint of God, we see him taking the lowest place of society. This king coming as a baby, and not only a baby, but born to a virgin, which is more than just a miracle, though it is a miracle. It's also him saying, I know that I'm going to be called an illegitimate child. I mean, who would believe you if you said you were pregnant without, you know. So, right? I mean, this is, they didn't believe Mary. And he knew that. He comes and takes the lowest place of society. He's making this kingdom principle clear. In his birth and in his life, he constantly chose the outcast, the least of society, those that no one else would have chosen. I mean, when his disciples tried to shoo away the kids because they were in the way and kids in the society weren't worshipped as we worship kids. Just check Facebook if you don't believe me, right? I'm guilty. Um, but, but kids in this society weren't worshipped that way. They were property and they were, they were a nuisance. And so he tried to shoo them away. And Jesus says, no, let the little children come. He says, children are going to be the greatest in my kingdom. The least of these. This is what Jesus is doing. He, he gives little children the highest seats of honor in his kingdom. Prostitutes, thieves, the unclean are all welcome. And we love that idea of redemption. But do we actually live that out? Has the kingdom inundated our life so much that it's transformed us that we see the prostitute and instead of thinking she got herself into that mess, she got what she deserved, we think daughter of God. And maybe we dream on her behalf for what she might become because she doesn't have the energy to dream for herself anymore. Maybe we see the homeless beggar and instead of thinking poor decisions, we think valued, dignified, and priceless beyond compare. Do we invite them? Into our homes? Do we give them a place around our table? Do we upset the societal norms by operating under this kingdom principle? Has the gospel really changed us? Do we really believe that the kingdom moves on through the least? Is this our lens? Is this our worldview as it now has become Jacob's? And I ask that question for myself because that's not my natural reaction. We are utterly and helplessly dependent on God to transform us. We continue on in our story in Genesis chapter 49. When Jacob calls his sons together 
And he says, uh, he called his sons and says, Genesis 49 verse 1, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. So there's this call to his sons. He's going to move on to blessing each of them. I mean, you can imagine some of the lumps in their throat. I mean, their father's about to die. A lot of evil and wickedness has gone on in this family as they've helped spread the curse. And so they come and, and we're going to see as what Jacob says is going to determine their destiny. And I'm going to go quickly through the sons, except for Judah and Joseph, because that's what the text does. But real quick with Reuben, we get to Reuben, the first one, and as expected, Reuben is chastised. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. He should have been the one who led the way for the nation of Israel. But he slept with his father, Bilhah, his father's handmaid, tried to usurp the authority of his father. That was more than just about having sex, right? It was trying to usurp the authority of his father. He should have been preeminent, but he wasn't, and that came true. There was never a prophet, a judge, or a king that came from the tribe of Reuben. They would never lead, even though they rightfully should have. Simeon and Levi, he calls them out for their vengeful slaughter as an act that was done in revenge for their sister being raped as they wiped out a whole city. And, and later, Jacob says that they're going to be divided and they're going to be scattered. And that happened. The tribe of Simeon virtually disappeared after the conquest of the land and Levi was given responsibility to the priesthood. So they had no land. They had no property. They were scattered, as the prophecy said. And so then we get to Judah. I mean, what will Jacob say about Judah? Remember, this is the Judah who sold Jacob's favorite son, Joseph, into slavery. I mean, he was the ringleader in that. He's also the Judah who oppressed Tamar time and time again. He tried to have her murdered because she was in his way of comfort. And in Genesis 49, verse 8, we read, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. This doesn't make sense. I mean, I mean, there's no remembrance of sin. There's no mention of the evil that Judah had done. But as we look back on the life of Judah, we remember that the difference between Judah receiving this blessing instead of a curse is that there was repentance, being humbled, and transformation. It began at Tamar's revelation. Almost like the thou art the man moment. And he's revealed of his wickedness. And instead of um, trying to just fight it, he confesses his sin. And it leads eventually to his offering up of his own life to give on behalf of Benjamin. To absorb the faults of Benjamin and take the evil on himself. And here we see the second kingdom principle. That the kingdom of God uses the least likely methods. The kingdom of God uses the least likely methods. This doesn't make sense. Jacob is acting under this principle. He forgets Judah's past sins and instead passes incredible blessing onto Judah. And does this not remind us of a God who remembers our sins no more? Who removes them as far as the east is from the west? Chooses to not punish us according to our iniquities, but rather blesses us according to his steadfast love. This is how God works. It doesn't make sense, but it's how the kingdom moves forward. And let's continue reading in in verse 9. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? There's this powerful image given of Judah as a conquering lion who reigns. I mean, this, this Judah as a lion would become a biblical metaphor for a king who reigns. I mean, he's someone you don't mess with. You don't wake him up. Who will rouse him, right? He's someone whose kingdom cannot be removed in verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him. To this king shall be the obedience of the peoples. All nations will bow down in obedience to this king. And we know that this promise will find partial fulfillment in earthly kings, such as King David and King Solomon. But we know that the final fulfillment will come through the one and only true Messiah, King Jesus. And as we read a few weeks ago, through the line of Judah, it's that this ultimate king will come. And he will not only come, but as Judah did, he will offer up his life in the ultimate act of sacrifice, not just to redeem, 
a younger brother. Not just to pay the price that the younger brother deserved, but to redeem all nations, all tribes, all tongues, and all peoples unto himself. And in verse 11 and 12, we get a glimpse of what the consummated reign of this king will look like. Because we're not there. We're not there yet. It's begun, but we're not there. And he says in verse 11, binding his fold to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. When I first read this, I thought it had to do with some kind of war metaphor. I mean, I heard vesture and eyes darker than wine. I heard blood of grapes. So I hear blood. That's, this is actually the exact opposite. This is nothing to do with violence. This is everything to do with a peaceful place of shalom. It's a poetic way of saying that under this king, there will be abundance and prosperity, strength and power and ultimate shalom. See, grapes and wine were very valued in this culture. And so Jacob is saying that under the consummated reign of this king, that you can take an animal, a donkey's colt, and they would never tie animals close to grapes because they were valued, they were expensive, and they didn't want the donkey to eat them. But in this kingdom, it's so abundant that you can tie a donkey to it, and it can, you can tie it to the best vine, and he can eat away. Because there's more to come. He says that he washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. That's saying that wine is as abundant as water. That you just wash your clothes in it. And this is what this king does. It's like when we read that streets of gold are in heaven. That's not because they're really pretty. It's because we value gold. And in heaven, gold is so abundant that it's used for pavement. Like that's how amazing the reign, the consummated reign of this king is. Remember, this wine imagery, does it not remind us of King Jesus as he steps on the scene announcing his kingdom and the first miracle he does is turn water into wine, showing that his kingdom is here and that this king will defeat all brokenness, that all oppression and injustice and brokenness of this age will cease to rule underneath this king. But how does this King Jesus choose to reign? How does he choose to defeat his enemies? He chooses in the cross and resurrection to defeat his enemies by loving his enemies. By giving his life and submitting his life in the cross and resurrection, he absorbs the entire brokenness of mankind. He takes the very worst that sin, death, and the evil one can give him, and he gives up his life willingly to absorb what we should have received. As Judah volunteered to absorb what Benjamin should have received, so Jesus is absorbing our brokenness on our behalf. The worst injustice in the entire world was done to the creator of the universe, allowing himself to be killed by the very ones he created and gave life. This is so upside down. And as Jesus lays in the grave, it seems as if this kingdom would end, as if the promise would not be fulfilled. As if this ruler's staff and this scepter that was promised to not depart had now been passed from King Jesus, the Messiah, to the evil one, the Satan. And now brokenness would spread without restraint. And we have to ask, do we trust the work of God? Can we say as Jesus did on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Take it, do whatever with it you want. Can we trust that God will use the worst day in history to bring about light from darkness? To take ashes and turn it to beauty and take despair and turn it to hope. Do we believe that he can do that? And as the king lays dead in a cold, dark tomb, death begins to rejoice in victory. And sin begins to take its hold on the entire cosmos without restraint. The demons of hell begin to shout for joy because the glory of God has now faded. And their nemesis is defeated. But little do they know. That this was God's plan all along. See, no one can actually take the life of this king. I mean, he created life. Who could take his life away? But Jesus willingly takes it all. And in the resurrection and the cross, he reveals that death has no power over him, that the grave could not keep him, and that sin no longer reigns because this king is risen. And here's the thing you've got to understand. That's not just a really cool story. That's just the first fruits. Jesus is ushering in this new creation. That's when it started. It's not consummated yet. And we get to be a part of the new creation project. That's why shortly after he said, go make disciples of all nations. Spread this rule and reign to the entire cosmos. So sin now no longer has power over us. It cannot taunt us and guilt cannot hang over our heads. Shame cannot stay any longer because Jesus has bought us back, redeemed us, and declared us guiltless. And it's not just that. 
This is also a cosmic battle and a cosmic victory because the cosmic powers of evil are being undone on the cross and in the resurrection. And we know it's not complete because we see the entire earth groaning to be restored. We see it happen as we look around and we see hurricanes and natural disasters and we look for signs. But the reality is, look no further than the fact that the earth is broken and it is longing and groaning to be restored. And we see shootings in Las Vegas and we groan with creation. God, restore us. We need you. And with the entire cosmos, we await the coming of this king. Because then shootings and wars will cease. Injustice, oppression, and racism will be no more. And guns will be turned into garden tools. What a beautiful picture. That we will work in peace and shalom. And this, this story enables us to spread his good rule and reign now. To work for this. It's not just that we sit back and say, Jesus, make it so. No, we get involved and we get our hands dirty because he lets us rule and reign with him. We want to see his kingdom come here now. And can we operate out of this kingdom principle that we're willing to take the lowest seat? We're willing to work in methods that don't make sense to this age. That the method of kingdom advancement is through suffering and brokenness and death. And we can give that to God and say, I trust that you will resurrect it. We don't have to grasp for control. We can say, as Jesus did, Father, into your hands, I commit my my dreams, my plans, my goals, everything I thought I had laid out for my life, and it's just shattered at my feet. And instead of trying to grasp and fix it and pick it up, I just let it die and say, God, do something amazing. And who gets glory out of that? You don't. You're the one that messed it up. God receives ultimate glory. Can you say that we are counted worthy to share in his sufferings? What a privilege. So when brokenness is there, we say, God, thank you. And I know it's hard. I'm not minimizing it. It's hard. But we say, God, thank you that I get to share in your suffering because that means that resurrection awaits. And so then Jacob continues his blessing on to Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. They all receive blessing that gets some form of prosperity, even in the midst of brokenness. And then we get to Joseph. In Genesis 49, verse 22, and we read about the blessing to Joseph. He starts off, Joseph is a fruitful bow. A fruitful bow by a spring, his branches run over the wall. And this, unlike some of the other prophecies, wasn't about the future. It was saying, Joseph is this right now, and he was. This imagery of branches running over a wall, it's really beautiful. It's that the fruit and the prosperity is so abundant that it runs over the wall so that those that are not a part of this kingdom and this city actually get to partake of the fruits of this. It's blessed to be a blessing. And is this not what Joseph was? Is he was the second in command in Egypt, and he was sending to the entire world blessing because God blessed him. I mean, this is a beautiful, poetic way of saying this. But he says in verse 23, the archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. This hasn't been easy. It's not been a cakewalk, right? I mean, we could recount Joseph being thrown into a pit and then being thrown into prison by a false accusation. I mean, it's been tough. And as we've seen already, Joseph might not fully understand how God operates. He might not fully have adopted this kingdom worldview, as Jacob's had to already correct him when he crossed his hands. Jacob wants to make sure that Joseph knows that his position and his prosperity and his power is all of God. And it's about something bigger than just him. And so we get to the third kingdom principle that the kingdom of God exists for God's glory and for the good of all nations. We're going to read this entire blessing to Joseph. It's just a few verses. But as we read it, I want you to look for two things. One, I want you to look how often blessing is mentioned. When you hear blessing, it's not just about Joseph being blessed. It is about the entire earth being blessed through Joseph. And so it is this all nations promise. And then I want you to look at who receives credit for the current and future success of Joseph. Because it is not Joseph. It says in verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. Why? Because his arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you. By the almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that crouches beneath. Blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. 
May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Jacob makes it clear that Joseph's story is all of grace. And it is God that gets the glory. And as we've seen time and time again in Genesis, all the way to the cross and resurrection, that God is in control. He is sovereign and he works his purposes. He will keep his people. We see this language of the mighty one of Jacob. This king is powerful. We see again the language of shepherd who intimately guides his sheep. And we see the stone of Israel. The first time this cornerstone is mentioned. And this stone will not be moved even as his people are fickle and go back and forth and up and down. This stone remains steadfast. And this blessing is given to be spread. And we, as Joseph was, get to be a part of this. We get to be a part in Jesus of spreading blessing to the entire earth. And this is our motivation. This is why we choose the least likely people. This is why we choose and use the least likely methods for the kingdom of God to get glory, for God to get glory, and for the good of all nations, not just to keep it into ourselves. We look again through the lens of Jesus who's promised to return and consummate his kingdom, and you get to be a part of this. He's working and always has. So let me say this to you, church. As his people, your bow will remain unmoved. Your arms will be made agile, not because of your strength, but because of the mighty one of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because of the one who called you. He will complete the good work in you that he has started. He will enable you to be the hands and feet of Jesus, spreading his kingdom to the entire earth. Be encouraged, church. Because the gates of hell will not prevail. Everlasting and eternal glory awaits. Do we look at this story of God and we just sit in awe? Or does it just kind of not mean anything to us? I want you to taste and see that he's good. I want you to see his glory spreading to the entire earth. And it frees us to trust God's sovereignty. So we can work freely, motivated by love. To see God's kingdom and glory spread to all nations. And as we begin to wrap this up, I said we would take a glimpse into the eternal throne room of God to tie this all together. In Revelation chapter 5, John is sharing this vision that he was graciously granted. And he gets to see a glimpse into the current eternal dwelling of God. And In verse 1, he says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who is worthy to open the scroll? And and I got to explain something to you so this makes sense. Revelation is not just some futuristic book that has no value and isn't applicable to our day. This is a, a glimpse into the current rule and reign of God. And John gets a glimpse into this ceremony. This was a ceremony. And it would have conjured up images of current Olympic games of the day. And as they would begin the Olympic games, they couldn't start until they opened the scroll. And they would ask, who is found worthy to open the scroll? And King Caesar would proclaim himself as the only one worthy. And he would open the scroll and they would begin the games and all the accomplishments of King Caesar would be lauded and they would praise his name and they would call him the son of the gods. They would also laud him because he had slaughtered other nations and brought prosperity to their own people. He had shed the blood of others. And so this is the backdrop to what John's saying. It's best to understand this scroll as blueprints to the new creation. He's literally asking, who is worthy to start this new creation project, to reverse the curse. Who can do it? Who can fix this brokenness? Because we need it. And so again, we ask, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? In verse 3, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Who's going to fix this? And I begin to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and to look into it. John begins to weep because there's no man who can do this. We've seen it. This whole story has been kings and men trying to fix it and they just mess it up worse and worse. Who can defeat the evil one in this curse? And John weeps because no one is found worthy. And in verse 5, he says, One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There is a king worthy, and it is this lion of the tribe of Judah prophesied all the way back in Genesis who can usher in this kingdom, who can open the scroll and begin this new creation project, begin ushering in the good, final, consummated kingdom. But as is always the case when it comes to the kingdom of God, we're in for a surprise. 
We're in for taking what we expect to see and it being flipped on its head. Because this is what John expects to see. He's clear that he expects to turn and see this massive conquering lion as the tribe of Judah who would crush his enemies. What do we see in verse 6? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. A lamb. Standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He expects to see this conquering lion, but what does he see? A sheep. A sheep, not only a sheep, but a sheep that has been slaughtered for the sins of humanity. This great shepherd has now become a slaughtered sheep for the sake of redeeming all nations unto himself. This is how God reigns. The mighty one of Jacob laid down his own life and allowed himself to be crucified, executed to save us from death. This stone of Israel, this cornerstone has been cast down and shattered for the purpose of building up a spiritual house and a spiritual kingdom made up of you and I. This doesn't make sense. This should lead us to stop and say, oh, the depth and the riches of God, you are worthy. And that's what they say in verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them, these people, he's ransomed, a kingdom and priests to our God. And these people shall reign on the earth. The accomplishments that are allotted of this king are not like the kingdoms of this age. Where they shed others' blood. The accomplishment that's allotted is the shedding of his own blood. And he calls people that no one else would have called us, church. This ragtag, broken group of outcasts that the world has considered stupid and insignificant and worthless. This king says, I'm calling you, I'm making you a kingdom and a priest to the creator of the universe, and you're going to reign on this earth and spread my kingdom. This is what we get to be a part of, church. This is what happened to Jacob. He had grasped this and it changed the way he functioned. He developed a kingdom worldview where he lived this out on earth now as it is in heaven. That's what we desire. For this glimpse into the throne room, we want to see pockets of that breakout in Limestone County. We want to see Limestone County flooded with the good news of Jesus where people just worship him and are in awe and bow down to him in reference and submission because he is worthy. The kingdom of God chooses the least likely people uses the least likely methods and exists for the glory of God and for the good of all nations. If you really believe this, this isn't something you can just sprinkle into your life on Sunday morning or at your missional community. This is something that consumes your whole life. It is all of life worship that leads to all of life transformation. Remember, transformation happens through worship. And when all of life is worshiped to God, then all of life is transformed by God, from politics to parenting to whatever, name it. This is what we desire for us as a body. We're going to spend some time praying now. The band can go in and come back up. We're going to spend some time just praying, and I have a few different prayer directives that I'm going to use to guide us. The first one is ask God to give you a kingdom worldview through which to see the world. If, if this isn't how you see the world, and be honest with yourself, it's okay. That's, repentance is a gift to the believer. That we can say, I don't. Often I stand in judgment and arrogance and other things. And so we ask God and say, I repent of that. Give me a kingdom worldview. Let me see things, as we sang earlier, break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything I am for your kingdom's cause. The second thing, with Las Vegas in mind, I want you to specifically think of Las Vegas. Pray for injustice to cease and evil to be eradicated. And don't forget the evil in your own heart. The brokenness in your own heart. Pray for injustice to cease and for this king to come. It's okay to admit. I mean, I'm sure it was a lot this week I, I, when I saw the news. How long, God? How long does this brokenness continue to exist? And thirdly, I want you to just praise God and give him glory for accomplishing his work among all peoples. Just say, God, thank you. You are king. You reign. You are glorious. You are magnificent. I worship you. Tell him that with your words.
And if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you don't know Jesus like this, just talk to God and say, I want to know this. Open my eyes so I can see. Take my heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh. Let's pray for a couple minutes and then we'll move into a time of communion. I'll close us in prayer. King Jesus, we thank you that you reign, that right now you're at the right hand of your Father working, even when it doesn't seem like it. How we ask that we would be given a kingdom worldview, for that's how we operate, that's how we live, together as a people, encouraging each other, because we don't have the power and strength to do on our own. You give us brothers and sisters, you give us your spirit. God, awaken us to that, awaken us from our slumber. As you're doing, God, we praise you for what you are doing, as you're awakening people the gospel of your kingdom. And God, as we think about Las Vegas and just other areas of brokenness in this world, we pray for injustice to cease. We say, how long, oh God? How long until you come and bring your rightful kingdom? How long until you cast out evil and injustice? And as we pray that, we see the brokenness in our own hearts. And we say, God, get rid of it. We don't want to do that. When we love you and we want to worship you alone and be fixed on your faith, not the gods and idols of this age that call our name. And God, we give you glory. We say you are marvelous. Oh Lord, our Lord, your majesty is above the heavens. You do as you please, but you are mindful of humanity and you use us in your project. And our response is you are majestic. Thank you for accomplishing your work. We know it's as good as done because you gave us your spirit to guarantee that it will happen. So we say thank you. We pray all this covered by the blood of your precious son, Jesus Christ, the only way we can come before you.